Hello from David Rutledge. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone. And something a little different this week from our usual discursive approach to the wonderful world of philosophy. We're going to be hearing a story, and it's the story of a Chinese intellectual who lived in the late 19th and early 20th century. His name was Yan Fu. He's not well known in countries like Australia, but he is something of a household name in China, where he's famous for having introduced some of the great liberal philosophers of the West to Chinese readers for the first time. Yan Fu was a military officer and newspaper editor, but he was also a translator, and among his translations were texts such as Thomas Huxley's Evolution and Ethics, Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, Herbert Spencer's The Study of Sociology, and Montesquieu's The Spirit of the Laws. Yan Fu's translations are really interesting. They're a very good example of how translation is rarely, if ever, a transparent, ideology-free process, and we'll be hearing about that shortly. Yan Fu lived during a time of extreme social and political upheaval, both in China and in Europe, that left him somewhat disillusioned about the promises that Western liberalism extends to its adherents. Well, telling us about all of this today is Annie Lumen Wren. She's a literary translator who recently received her PhD from the Australian National University. And Annie Lumen Wren is speaking with producer Dallas Rogers. Yan Fu was born in 1854 near the coastal city of Fuzhou in Fujian province. And the location is important in this context because Fuzhou was actually one of the five treaty ports that opened for trade following the first uh, opium war. And uh, he came from a well-respected family. Both his father and grandfather were doctors, and they made sure he received the best education available. Until the age of 12, his education was conventional in the sense that it followed the well-established tradition of intensive study and memorization of Confucian texts, all in preparation for the civil service exam. Um, But this all changed when his father passed away and his family lost their main source of income. So money was really tight, um, and Yan Fu and his mother and two sisters had to move in with relatives, and his mother supported the family by doing needlework. Luckily, a friend of the family, who was also a uh, a local official, heard about their predicament and recommended Yan Fu for admission to the Fuzhou Shipyard School. So schools such as these were, um, which specialized in the so-called Western affairs, um, that is the teaching of Western science and technology, were established in the 1860s as part of the Qing state's um, effort to modernize. It's known as the self-strengthening movement. So the Qing state was trying to recover from the damages of two opium wars and also a decade long of civil unrest caused by the Taiping Rebellion. And schools such as these were controversial at the time. So in order to attract students, they not only offered free tuition, but also a generous sum of um, monthly stipend. So it worked very well for someone like Yan Fu. What's interesting about the self-strengthening movement is that while clearly it recognized the supremacy of Western science and technology, it nonetheless treated Western ideas as something that is inferior to the Chinese system of thought. So for his entrance exam that Yan Fu had to do um, to gain admission to the Fuzhou Shipyard School, he was not tested on his knowledge of mathematics or physics. I mean, it's safe to assume he had none. But rather, he was asked to write an essay in classical Chinese on the topic of 
one's lifelong filial devotion to one's parents, uh, which this is a direct quote actually taken from the book of Mencius, which for schoolboys like Yan Fu, they would have memorized the entire book by the time they turned seven or eight. So I guess it's worth mentioning that Yan Fu's essay was actually ranked first place amongst all the students, and his biographer is actually uh, attributed to his recent loss of his father, and therefore he was able to exhibit genuine feeling in this otherwise hackneyed topic. Um, and because of this, he was actually given the opportunity of choosing to attend either the School of Naval Architecture, where French was the language of instruction, or the School of Navigation, where courses were taught in English. Um, had he gone with, you know, the former, his life might have turned out to be really different. Uh, because as we know, English was to become the medium of his access to Western ideas. And it was very much the ideas of English philosophers that came to dominate his intellectual development. Could you tell me a little bit about the difference between the exams he was studying for in Chinese sort of built off the Confucian texts and that whole system of examination and how the Western process, the Western affairs tradition would be different? Well, the Fuzhou Shipyard School offered uh, both, I think in the morning, they, they still studied the classical Chinese. So it's sort of a continuation of the kind of studies that Yan Fu was familiar with. And in the afternoons, they would have, you know, obviously lessons in English, lessons in mathematics, and I guess the more sort of related aspect to do with naval navigation. I'm not sure what kind of courses exactly that he took, but it, it, it is a really balanced curriculum from what I understand. And so basically, this gives him access to English language, and he uses that English when he goes to England. Can you tell me a bit about his time in England? Sure. So after spending five years at the Fuzhou Shipyard School, Yan Fu decided to put his training into practice by going to sea. And he did so for the next six years, uh, selling to places like Singapore, Japan, and Taiwan. Um, there was a, a commander on board his vassal who was a British naval officer, and he was really impressed by Yan Fu. And it was largely owing to his recommendation that Yan Fu was given the opportunity to study at the Royal Naval College in Greenwich. So he arrived in England in uh, 1877 when he was 23 years old. And he was only meant to be there for a year, but um, it was through the interference of another gentleman by the name of Guo Songtao, who was actually China's first ambassador to Great Britain, that Ye Fu was allowed to stay on for an extra year. Um, during this time, he and Ambassador Guo became very good friends, despite the vast differences in their age and status. Um, so Ambassador Guo was already in his 60s, and apart from being one of the prominent, most prominent statesmen of his generation. He was also a member of the prestigious Hanling Academy, which is sort of like being elected a fellow of the Australian Academy for the Humanities, I guess. Uh, while Yan Fu was just, you know, this young boy from the provinces with a, you know, rather unconventional education. Um, but clearly, Ambassador Guo saw something in Yan Fu. He even took him to a diplomatic tour uh, to France. And Yan Fu would recall their friendship many years later in his commentary to his translation of Montesquieu's The Spirit of Laws. He said, 
after spending many fascinating days at the British law courts observing the trials, um, he remarked to Ambassador Gore that the reason why um, countries like England are powerful and strong uh, was because uh, impartial justice, which he called gongli, is daily extended. And to this, Yanfu relates, the ambassador heartily agreed. So we actually don't have evidence which suggests that Yanfu was actually even reading the kind of books that he um, later come to translate. But it is clear from the above account that he was already actively thinking about um, these questions that he would later devote much of his time in answering. Questions such as, um, what are the secrets to Western wealth and power? Um, what does the West have that China lacks? What are the crucial differences between China and the West. And I just want to emphasize here that I'm using the two terms in their broadest sense, because for Yan Fu, there was no such thing as China just yet. It was for him the Qing Empire. And unlike many of his Chinese peers, he remained a supporter of the Manchu Qing dynasty, even after it had been overthrown by the revolution of 1911. Um, you know, for those of you who are not familiar with Chinese history, the Manchus were, were a group of nomadic people that came from an area known as Manchuria. So they're strictly speaking not Chinese, and they conquered China in the middle of the 17th century. So his attachment to the Manchu monarchy is, has been a controversial aspect of his life. Yeah, I think it's really important to keep the history of China in our minds here. And the idea of China really as a nation state is a relatively new idea. There was lots of different groups fighting for power at this time. We're coming out of the um, opium wars. And it's really a time of maritime empires, which I think is also interesting in terms of the education that he's receiving. And that is partly why he's in London as well. Tell us what happens after he leaves England. Sure. I think the most important aspect of Yanfu's life is obviously his career as a translator. And you, like you said, in order to understand this path he chose for himself, we really have to take into account the historical context um, and the kind of situation he found himself in uh, after arriving back in China. So he came back in the summer of 1879, um, and after teaching for a year at his old school in Fuzhou, he moved north to another port city called Tianjin, where he remained for the next 20 years, serving at the Northern Naval College there. And the first decade of his life in Tianjin was sort of a dark period in his life because he was constantly frustrated by the fact that he thought he had been excluded from the inner circles of decision-making, which he attributed to his lack of a proper degree. Um, that is, he never passed the civil service exam. And he, he was somehow being discriminated against. I think there's some truth in that. Um, so he tried to compensate this uh, by studying and taking the exams four times in 10 years. And for some reason, he never passed. So it was a really stressful time for him. And he was also reportedly suffering from poor health. I just, the civil service exam, you better tell us a little bit about how that worked. Well, it's a very sort of elaborate system and it has obviously a long tradition. Um, but by the Ming and the Qing dynasty, it has been standardized where you write a really formal 
uh, essay known as the Eight-Legged Essay. And it's sort of basically test your knowledge and your memory of the Confucian text. So all the questions would be a quotation taken from one of the Confucian canons, and you, you're supposed to elaborate on that. So it's, it was very much like the kind of, you know, test that Yan Fu had to sit for his admission to the Fuzhou Shipyard School, but I guess on a higher level and with more competition. And that was the way that you got into civil service. That was, it was a meritocracy whereby you passed the exam and then you could go into service. That's correct. So I think he was having a hard time at home trying to pass the exam. Um, and reportedly, his relationship with his wife and concubines were also difficult. And it, during this time, he also became addicted to opium, um, a habit that he was never really able to shake off. And I think this was really his Achilles heel. Later, when he became famous, his opponents would attack him in public for being an opium addict. So the turning point in his life really came in 1894, when the Sino-Japanese War broke out. And like you said, it's very much a showdown between the two countries' naval forces. And like, you know, Yan Fu was, for most part of his life, a naval officer. So China's defeat in the following year was traumatic for him on all levels, because um, on a more personal level, many of his former classmates from the Fuzhou Shipyard School and the students he helped to train during his time in Tianjin all perished in the war. And we have letters Yan Fu wrote to friends uh, dating to this period in which he describes his utter heartbreak. Um, he, he said, you know, he would often wake up in the middle of the night in tears and his heart and his hands would be trembling as an overwhelming sense of uh, shock and despair washes over him. And I think it's a sentiment shared by many of his contemporaries. But um, more significantly, I think China's defeat had made it clear to Yan Fu that, you know, the self-strengthening movement had been an utter failure, a movement that he, you know, was brought up to believe in. And it made him realize that it was not enough to just learn Western science and technology, but one should look to the secrets of Western success in its um, social and political institutions. And this is when he began to introduce Western thought in a systematic and rigorous fashion. He translated Huxley's Evolution and Ethics and Adam Smith's Wealth of Nation and etc. Um, so his output in conclusion, was not simply driven by a sense of intellectual curiosity, but by pragmatic concerns. Um, he saw his country in a state of existential crisis, and then he proceeded to find a solution for it. This is RN, you're in the Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, and this week, producer Dallas Rogers is speaking with Annie Lumen-Wren, a literary translator and recent PhD graduate from the School of Culture, History and Language at the Australian National University. She's telling the story of Yan Fu, a celebrated figure in China whose translations of philosophers like Thomas Huxley and Adam Smith represented some of the first contacts between China and Western liberalism. Thank you. 
Yanfu's translations of Western philosophical texts have been celebrated but also sometimes criticised as being, to some extent, misinterpretations that offer skewed and selective readings of their sources. I think there's a certain um, degree of truth in that because he was translating um, out of pragmatic concerns. He was just trying to find uh, whatever he thought would help save the falling empire. So just to give you a brief example, um, he thought he had found the solution to lift China from its weakness in the philosophies, in the doctrines of social Darwinism. And the first translation he ever published was Huxley's Evolution and Ethics. And it also proved to be the most influential of all his translations. Um, Today, we have the hindsight to know just how problematic these ideas are. And Huxley, even though he was a supporter of Darwin's theory of evolution, he was nonetheless a steady objector to its social implications. So his book, which was based on the series of lectures he gave, um, really emphasized the ethics part as opposed to evolution. Uh, while Yan Fu omitted the word ethics entirely from his translation of the title, and he called his translation instead on natural selection, uh, or Tian Yan Luan in Chinese, which literally means on heaven's progress. And one can certainly question the validity of, you know, equating the Chinese notion of heaven, Tian, with the Darwinian concept of natural selection and evolution. You're a literary translator, so what do you make of the style of translation in Yan Fu's work? Yes, I think Yan Fu's translation, in addition to you know being a systematic introduction of Western thought, it is also being read by many of the conservative readers of his time for the elegance of his prose. And I think that's what fascinates me the most as a translator myself. Um, he wasn't translating into the spoken language of his day, but instead into literary Chinese. And it's not the kind of literary Chinese that um, every schoolboy back then could write. It was an extremely archaic form of literary Chinese. So it's sort of like, you know, taking the writings of a contemporary author like Ishiguro and turning it into Chaucerian English. And naturally, many of his contemporaries questioned the validity of his approach. I mean, since his goal was to, you know, introduce Western thought to the Chinese public, shouldn't he make his translation more comprehensible? Um, Yanfu actually came out and defended his approach by saying, you know, his translations weren't meant to be read by schoolboys, but by those who are well-versed in ancient books, which, you know, is a rather elitist attitude. But more importantly, he said that the kind of Western ideas that he is dealing with specifically are subtle and profound. And therefore, in using this kind of archaic Chinese uh, found in early philosophical and classical texts, he is actually trying to facilitate an understanding of Western ideas by drawing a connection. And I think that's the most important and most fascinating aspect of Yan Fu's translation, that he is not only able, but also willing to transcend the dichotomy between Chinese and Western culture. Um, his universe was never neatly divided into, you know, the two incommunicable spheres of Chinese tradition on one hand and modern Western thought on the other. But instead, you know, he was always trying to look for universal issues of human thought uh, whilst 
reading the, all the Western texts. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, the kind of tension there between cultural essentialism, that there is something uniquely Western and Chinese about this, but also the quest for universal kind of ideas that can percolate to the top. And through that process, there needs to be a form of cultural translation. I wonder what you make of people in the West claiming that he didn't interpret these texts the right way, whether that is the wrong frame to understand the translation of these works. Mm. I think from a Western perspective, we shouldn't see Yan Fu as someone who's simply influenced by Western thought and who proceeded to add his interpretations or transcribe what he believed he had saw in Western thought. But instead, we should see him as someone who is writing from the angle of a culture that has not yet experienced modernity, and that his reflection and his grasp of Western thought, not as a unified whole, but containing many conflicting and, you know, contending tendencies. And, and I think this provides a fascinating vantage point uh, for us to reevaluate our own tradition. What happens to uh, Yan Fu after the First World War? Yes, that's a very good question. I think in the last decade of Yan Fu's life, he grew more and more disillusioned to Western ideas, especially having witnessed the carnage caused by the Great War, uh, which filled him with alternating modes of awe and horror. And actually, um, he wrote about this in a letter to one of his students, which I'd like to quote here. And the translation is by Professor Benjamin Schwartz um, from Harvard University. Actually, I think for anyone who's interested in Yan Fu's interpretation of Western ideas, I'd highly recommend his book, which he aptly called uh, In Search of Wealth and Power, Yan Fu in the West. So this is what Yan Fu wrote. Such has been the effect on the human race of civilization and science. As I have grown older and observed the seven years of Republican government in China and four years of bloody war in Europe, a war such as the world has never known, I have come to feel that the West's progress during the last 300 years has not only led to selfishness, slaughter, corruption, and shamelessness. When I look back on the way of Confucius and Mencius, I find that they are truly the equivalent of heaven and earth and have profoundly benefited the realm. This is not my opinion alone. Many thinking people in the West have gradually come to feel the way, this way. So it's very interesting, I think. Um, as he grew older, he became, in a sense, he returned to the Chinese tradition. And this is actually in his name as well. His given name, his first name is Fu, to return. And the name he chose for himself, because Chinese intellectuals always like to make up a name for themselves, is Ji Dao, which literally means many ways. And I think he is a person, a man capable of going down many paths, many ways. But in his head, they all lead to the same destination. Um, so he retired to his village in 1920. And Writing from there again, and I want to quote from translation by Professor Benjamin Short. He said, Idling in my little pavilion, I watched the clouds and listened to the rain, or else kill time by practicing calligraphy. 
I cannot look at the books on history and philosophy of which I was formerly so fond and do not care to talk of current affairs. I lie here like a dry stick and cold ashes, all but dead. Of what avail is it to live longer this way in the world of man? My heart is now at peace. I am assigned to the great transformation. It's quite beautiful, but clearly, you know, he's given up on all hopes of that he had as a young man to change his country, to make a difference. I'd like to shift gears a little bit now and to sort of think about what Yan Fu might offer us today. So obviously, geopolitical tensions between Australia and China are increasing. Uh, there are various interference laws that have kind of taken aim at China. And there is lots of commentary in the media about the problems with Australia and China's relationship. Do you see some helpful stories or do you see some positivity in the story of Yan Fu, who both travelled geographically between China and England, but also travelled intellectually between these ideas as well? Hmm. I think certainly it, with the new laws, it would be impossible for someone like Yan Fu to come to Australia and study maybe, you know, science or technology because some these things are now classified as inaccessible for foreigners. Um, but I think more importantly, uh, from a Chinese perspective, one cannot understand the sort of quest for modernity, the Chinese quest for modernity and for wealth and power without first understanding Yan Fu and the effect of his translation. So, I mean, his translation galvanized a successive generation of Chinese intellectuals who looked to the West for solutions to fix their country. And this, of course, included the young Mao Zedong who read Yan Fu while still in his hometown in rural Hunan. And I think the kind of socialism practice in China today still carries, I think, more than anywhere else, the biological determinism of Darwin. Um, and, you know, the theme of struggle is, is a constant fixture in Maoist China. And, you know, the single-minded quest for wealth and power is ever so present. And I actually often wonder what Yan Fu would make of modern China today under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, which just recently celebrated its centenary. Because even though he translated Mills on Liberty, his attitude towards individual liberty is rather ambivalent. And scholars even accused him of um, misinterpreting Mills' concept of liberty. So in his translation, he sometimes presents individual liberty as a means to which to create a powerful and um, strong nation, which is a complete distortion of Mill's original thesis. Maybe that's a discussion we should take up another day. And it's been so good talking to you today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Annie Luman-Ren, she's a literary translator and recent PhD graduate from the Australian National University in Canberra, and she was speaking there with Dallas Rogers. More information on the website, that's The Philosopher's Zone. You can find us via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. And thanks so much for your company this week. I'm David Rutledge. I'm on Twitter at David P Zone, and I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now. Listener.